Hello everyone and welcome to episode 17 of the Fan Fiction Tapes. Today's episode is Trope Roundtable on Apocalypse How. I'm your host Maya and today I am joined by... Like every time, it's me, Dylan. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> and hey, it's Cam. I'm back. <laughs> and as always, I am our producer, Ian. Alright. Now, some of you like me, might not actually be that familiar with the tro a trope by the name of Apocalypse How. Now, Ian, this was your suggestion originally for an episode. Is there yes. anything you'd like to say about it? Well, since we are doing an entire month on world building, we figured we want to do a trope that has to do with settings. Um, Apocalypse How is kind of more of a, a master list of tropes or an, an overtrope of ways that the world ends. And the reason that I felt that was appropriate is because this episode is going to be coming out the day after Earth Day this year. Happy Earth Day, everyone. <laughs> I definitely didn't forget again. <laughs> <laughs> so Apocalypse How is basically all of the tropes that refer to... Uh, the, the way that the world can end, um, whether that's a societal disruption, collapse, or an extinction-level event, all the way up to the planet being annihilated. If you're at all familiar with TV tropes, um, TV tropes breaks it down into a whole bunch of different classes of apocalypse, uh, ranging from zero to six and then a couple off the end of the scale that talk about uh you know planet go by all the way up to uh multiverse go by um now how this can relate to a story um a lot of the times the apocalypse is something that your character is going to be trying to prevent right? Um, but sometimes it can be the background for a story. Uh, think Mad Max. The most recent Mad Max film, the Fury Road one, is my favorite movie, so I'm thrilled that you brought that up. <laughs> oh, yeah, go off. I feel... Oh, well, you insist. Um, yeah, so I jumped at the chance to guest on this episode because I love apocalyptic storytelling. I've had a, a fascination with it since I was like 12 or 13, because I was a very normal child. Uh, and when I was about 16 or 17, when Fury Road came out, I had at the same time been attempting to figure out what kind of story I wanted to tell, because I wanted to try and write a book, because what 17-year-old doesn't, but I wanted to tell a story that spoke to the things in the genres that I did love, sci-fi, action, adventure, but I wanted the representation that I wasn't getting in stories at the time, because this was in like 2015. Um, and the state of media in 2015 was lacking in representation that I wanted. And I was friends with a bunch of guys in high school who really liked action movies, and that's how we all bonded. And they thought it was cool that there was a girl who liked action movies. And when they went and saw Fury Road in theaters. They got out of the theater and then immediately blew up the group text telling me, in all caps no less, that I really needed to go see this movie because it was everything that I wanted in 
an action film. And they were right. And uh, it fundamentally rewired my brain and the way that I thought about apocalyptic storytelling and the way that I thought about what kind of characters I wanted slash felt allowed to want out of my media. The standard for me had been set. There was no reason anymore for me to settle for stories that did not have the full breadth, depth, and expression of human emotion evident in female characters, which was something that I had a big issue growing up on the kind of action movies that I watched with my dad, where the only female characters I ever saw were like the Bond girl femme fatale types. Not that there's anything wrong with that type of character, but when that's all you ever see time and time again, it gets kind of annoying. <laughs> so I still probably rewatch that movie once a year or more, and it remains something that I think about a lot, the experience of watching it and thinking about how effortlessly it underscored, getting back to the topic of this episode, the way that an apocalyptic setting can almost act like both a catalyst and a character. It's something that your character has to navigate through like any other setting, but it is also oftentimes in some way the driving force behind the way that protagonists, antagonists, and everyone in between act. And I thought that that was a really cool thing that one could feasibly add to their story, and I ended up doing that. And I, I did, for those who might be vaguely curious, I did write a book, and I am trying to get it traditionally published. And someone who read the manuscript, who is a published author herself, uh, voluntarily, without me having said anything, compared it to Fury Road. And it was the only time I think I've ever almost cried tears of joy over an email. I'm very normal, clearly. <laughs> That is fantastic. Such a mood. <laughs> oh, shoot, that me. I need to check my email. Yeah, you should do that. Check. But, but that's where the emails are. Don't do that. I must admit, I haven't read a lot of books where the world has ended. Or where the world ending is a... Well, okay, I've read a few where the world ending is a threat. I was not big on apocalyptic fiction as a kid. And most of the books I read today are kind of a function of the books I read as a kid. I do think that with the end of the most recent Dresden Files books, that's kind of a what TV tropes would call a class zero apocalypse. Uh, considering what happens to Chicago at the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Chicago. <laughs> you know, they know what they did. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. I got friends there. Come on now. <laughs> Don't live in Chicago. Chicago has it coming. <laughs> That's uh, staring at the winter weather yes it does i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah um for me in terms of apocalyptic settings in my younger years i was a total zombie apocalypse nerd um <laughs> you know i got swept up in the zombie craze of the early 2010s whatever and since then i have ventured into those different sort of collapses of the world most recently, I uh, went through and, you know, binged in a single night the entire manga of Dr. Stone, which is sort of a very unique example of, okay, what if everyone was okay? 
but what if they couldn't do anything for 37,000 years? Oh, God. Yeah, so... That is a... The, the premise of Dr. Stone is um, everyone is turned to stone. The smartest guy on the planet wakes up 37,000 years later. And he has to try and rebuild society and revive everyone. <laughs> That's a long-ass nap. Mm-hmm. Wow. Maybe I'd finally feel awake after that. <laughs> yeah, right? I was about to say. If I remember correctly, I haven't I haven't actually watched it, but I've I've heard about it. Wasn't he awake the entire time and counting the seconds? And yeah, that's he how counted he knows. the second, so he oh, knew geez. the date. Ishigami God, Senku never. is wild. <laughs> I, I yeah. would lose track. Um and basically he has to work from his goal is to one day eat ramen in space. <laughs> and he's starting from zero. <laughs> Literal Stone Age. He says, yep, oh. it took humanity however million years to get to this point. We're going we're gonna to do it in a sprint. <laughs> yeah, okay. Get excited. <laughs> Okay, now that's a better description to... of this series than you gave to me. <laughs> <laughs> I have to confess something, and that is that I, in the in the twenty tens uh, zombie apocalypse obsession, I was not on board. I have to confess that I did not like zombie apocalypse stories. I knew that they were there, and I tried to get myself to like them, but I did not enjoy them. Instead. Uh, around the same time that I'm recalling, you know, in, in that era, I was a teenager and I was on Tumblr uh, and fandom on Tumblr with everything <laughs> that that entails. Um, so I knew that The Walking Dead was a big thing and I tried I tried to get myself to like it, but I just couldn't do it. Instead, I, and this is sarcasm, kind of, I wisely chose to pivot to The Hundred, which was smart. Oh. Sarcasm. Oh, you um, poor, poor bastard. I, yeah, so for those listening not initiated... I'm so glad, but The 100 was a very, it was a famously infamous show aired by the CW in the 2010s, and it started off with a very interesting premise and then spiraled downhill, but the point of the first arc of the show was quite interesting. It was what if humanity had to punt itself into space for survival and then tried to figure out when or if the Earth would be inhabitable again, and then uh, everything kind of fell out from there, but... As a teenager, really into end-of-the-world narratives, I enjoyed the story's first narrative arc and its emphasis on not only what survival means based on who you are, but also an examine, an examination of, which is I think at the, the core of what I like about the apocalyptic genre as a whole, which is I like when it's got character-first examinations of, okay, so the world is ending or it has ended, we are as a society, devoid of all of the structures and the strictures that have held us together, that we've relied on, and that have divided us, um, who and what are you going to choose to be and do when you don't have anything except the people around you and yourself and whatever resources the narrative provides you? Who are you going to choose to be? What are you going to choose to do? How are you going to define all of the things that society has historically defined for you? And I could go on because I, I have thoughts about 
you can tell I wrote about this shit in grad school. Um, I have thoughts about how all of that uh, has come into like why we have so many queer characters in apocalyptic stories now, because I definitely think there's a through line, um, but I will shut myself up. But anyway, don't watch The 100 because it don't do that. Bad. Um, but it bad. It, don't do it. Don't do it. But um, for the first two, like two seasons, it wasn't half bad because there was a really solid commentary on all of the things that I like about apocalyptic stories, it just then fell apart. And also, if you know about The Hundred from Tumblr rumblings, you probably know it because the creator most famously spectacularly pulled off the barrier gaze trope, just really, really did it bad and then doubled down on it. That's, and that's the reputation that the show has now because it was that bad of a f*** up. Don't watch it. But that was what yep. I chose to watch instead of The Walking Dead. <laughs> I remember my younger sister getting into the 100. It must have been an early point in the show, but it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Right? Wild. My sister (laughs) gets into, like, a different media every week. Could never be me. I mean, and like, here's the thing, I, you know, I, we were talking before the show about stories that are so, they're so dichotomous and like, sometimes a story does something really well and then it also does stuff that's really, really bad. And I felt that way about The Hundred because like, there was so much wrong with that show. You will never hear me say otherwise and I'm never going to like, be an apologist for all the mistakes that the showrunner made. And at the same time, for a couple of my friends who I watched the show with and met through the show and through fandom it was the first time that they saw themselves represented on screen in a positive way. One of my friends was a disabled Latina woman who was in STEM, and she saw herself represented on screen for the first time. Another one of my friends had a, has a, a congenital deformity in one of her extremities. There's a character who has something quite similar in the show, and she is a well-rounded character with her with an entire character arc that has nothing to do with her disability and both of my friends got to see themselves represented on screen in a really cool way and i remember thinking to myself huh how did the show get this right and like so many other things wrong it's the duality of man but like it's the cw so you know (laughs) yeah that's the rule of the cw you get two good seasons and then everything goes downhill honestly the only reason i watched the show Uh, yeah was because of those two characters oh don't get me started. I watched that show. I watched The 100 to completion for those two characters and this one guy that I really wanted to see get punted into the sun, but then he actually grew as a person. And by the end, I was like, oh, okay, you're chill, which was an interesting masterclass in like building a character that compels people, not because they're a good person, but because you want to see how long they can go before they get punched in the face by some other character. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, in wrestling, we would call a money-drawing heel. You want to see him get beat up. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. I was like, you suck, dude. Who's going to tell you first? And aren't you going to care? But it was a very satisfying story arc. But anyway, I'm getting us off topic. I just have thoughts. Uh, John. (laughs) It was unfortunately... Yeah. Ironically, this character's name was also John. (laughs) Oh, speaking of the locked tomb... (laughs) <laughs> I suppose back to the that <laughs> on this show it does. Yes, it does. I suppose I suppose it's not 
immediately apparent in the setting, and it's not your typical apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic setting. But technically, the the locked tomb is a post-post-apocalyptic setting, as is revealed in Harrow the Ninth. Okay, are we allowed to talk about Nona the Ninth, or no? All of us here that are likely to read it have read it. Yeah. If okay. if there's anyone listening who hasn't read Nona the Ninth, uh, spoilers for the next few minutes. I will limit maybe, myself to two minutes. Maybe I maybe pause know. pause the episode here and go read that book and come back. When you hear me talking yeah. again, know that it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so one. I joked that Nona. I joked to my friends when I read it that Nona the Ninth was written specifically for me because Tamsin Muir popped off on two different levels of apocalyptic storytelling, both in the way that she set up like the structure of New Row and the way of life that Nona and Cam and Pal and Pira had, but then also the way that she narrated like John at all's backstory was peak creative apocalyptic fiction. Because it's very rare in the genre that you get someone, you know, usually like y'all were saying in the, the TV Tropes page is all about is like your protagonist is either reacting to or trying to stop the end of the world. Uh, and then you've got John playing fuck around and find out with the end of the world in a, in a way that's not actively trying to stop it, maybe, and is kind of reacting to it. But then it is strongly implied that the guy at least had something to do with it ultimately, or at least didn't, you know didn't do anything to help rebuild afterward. And I found both of those things really fascinating, but I was mostly just so into the world in which Nona and everybody else lived. It was a really cool and tangible example of the societal collapse subcategory, but like make it space age, make it sci-fi, make it, you know, post-industrial. I don't know. It was really cool. I had a lot of fun with that particular setting. I liked how it felt. I liked, how it was described so much that I accidentally wrote a nine chapter fic about it in post canon. I'm very normal. Um, but it was really fun to read. It was not what I was expecting out of the lock tomb, but nothing is ever what I expect out of the lock tomb. I'm just along for the ride at this point. Um, but it was really cool to see Tamsin lean into what has technically been all along a post post apocalypse story. I had fun with that. And now I will stop writing about Nona. I feel very normal about Nona the ninth in every way, as you've seen. Well, you you've stopped ranting about None of the Ninth, but I I have to say I really developed some some thoughts and theories a- after reading all of what went down in in John's backstory in None of the Ninth, and it's like uh-huh. he's he's reacting to the slow rolling climate apocalypse, but he has a very particular vision of how uh, the world should be saved, or at least how humanity should be saved, and. Uh, he, his reaction basically to, um, being told we're not going to go your, we're not doing it your way is he, he just flips the table and kills everyone. Literally. Literally. Yeah. But there's, there's like, he is the apocalypse in the lock tomb. He nukes the world. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so funny because he starts off that entire arc with, I I highlighted, I got an arc of Nona, so I was very normal for many months and couldn't talk about it to many people. But one of the first things that I highlighted in my PDF of the advanced readers copy was his quote about like, when the world ends, that's what wealthy people do. They head for the exit, which really underscored the like, 
class and cost disparity of, of who is allowed to quote unquote navigate the end of the world in relative safety. And from that point on, I was like, oh, I bet I'm going to love where this guy takes things. Spoiler alert. I did, but I also wanted to strangle the man. But it was very cool in a weird way <laughs> to watch. And I, 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 I do have to say, and um, I, I, this this might be a little bit of a side tangent, but I don't think that blood of eden and the people of new row and the other um dominican protectorates i don't think they're descended from the billionaires that escaped i agree i think i I think john was was so myopically focused on uh both the the billionaires trying to head for the exits as he put it and also on we have to do things my way I think there were other people doing their own exits that he just paid no attention to. That would about track. Ooh, wait. Yeah. I realized I can also talk about my most recent hyperfixation this episode. That'll happen later. Oh, oh boy. Okay, are we, um, are we done talking Lock Tomb spoilers? This is going to sound... A little fucked up after all of that, but I found John very <laughs> relatable for most of Nona. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I am a strong-willed scientist with an ego. I can relate to that. Yeah. I Which can't is... really say that I would do much better if I was suddenly given the powers of life and death. Oh, I'd love Which, to think I would do better, but, like, by whose metric? Most people's? No, probably not. My own? Maybe. Yeah. I, I think that's part of the beauty of uh, the apocalyptic style of storytelling is it forces us to confront, like, you know, we can look at a narrative and be like, oh, well, if the world was ending, I wouldn't do that. But it's like, we wouldn't actually know unless we were well in the middle of our own apocalypse, personal or not. And it's like, would we actually, would we actually do better? Because it's an extreme situation and you can never predict how you're going to react in an extreme situation until you're like in the situation. And when you are in situations, you're probably not thinking as clearly as you are when you're outside of the situation. And I think the nuance of that is really compelling. I could I could really be on brand for myself, go three for three and quote Richard Sykin, but I'm not gonna. It would be relevant, but I'm going to be normal. So, kind of on a relevant note, uh, there is a mech RPG that has been doing numbers on Tumblr. Ah, uh, we're we talking about Lancer now. Yes, I was just reading the 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 system document. The lore section in particular. Yes. I thought we were going to talk about Genlock. No. That is a show that it is. A sh- it, it, it was an absolute shame that it never got picked up for a second season. But yeah, maybe someday really, it'll Really continue. such a shame. If only there was a second season, Cam. <laughs> if only. Project. All of us are looking directly orthogonal to the Rooster Teeth website. Ah, the rooster teeth people. I know just enough to say that with the energy that I just said it. For those listening at home, I have not seen 
anything Rooster Teeth has created, I've been banned from one of their watching one of their creations until such a time as my friends can show me. We're having fun here. So, in the world of Lancer, about 5,000 years ago, the world came to an end. And it came to... I think it's about a thousand years from the current day and 5,000 years before the pre uh, present day of uh, the game, the world came to an end and it came to such a violent, complete and total end that the humans who survived and, you know, eventually rebuilt society for a very long time thought they were the first coming of humanity, that there was not anything before them. But as yeah. they progressed in technology, evident signs of our civilization became evident. And that scared the shit out of them, because basically, like, I think as soon as they got uh, something equivalent to SETI, the thing filled up with voicemails. Mm -hmm. The voicemails were all... Uh, centuries-old SOS calls. From orbital installations and colonies on other uh, moons and planets in the solar system. And then eventually they discover a vault. Which has a lot of funny technology in it. I don't actually entirely remember what all is in the vaults. I'm gonna have to engage with the story, I think. I'm fascinated. Ooh. Interesting. Anywho. Um, what I'm more familiar with is something that happens after humanity leaves Earth, now called Cradle, for the second time. You see, so, some of those SOS calls, I believe as Ian mentioned, came from far-flung colonies that we had in a desperate attempt yote generation ships to as the world was burning... Almost all of them died and failed. And one of the governments of the humanity escaping, or not escaping, but hum the humanity leaving Earth, called SECCOM for Second Committee, was so strongly motivated, motivated by the we can never get that close again, we must have enough worlds that nothing can kill us all, um, they went a little far. The only hmm. non-human sentient species that humanity has ever encountered in Lancer uh, was burned to the ground by SETCOM. Oh. SETCOM was a bunch of fascists. Huh. As is the style in any post-apocalyptic setting. <laughs> yeah. And also is common in sci-fi. And it's common mm. in the real world. Cry. Mm. <laughs> At United States government. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I did shamelessly also dunk on the United States government in the manuscript I'm trying to get published, so I was, like, sitting here going, yes, that. Eh, they deserve it. They know what I they don't, 
I don't like people who shamelessly abuse power. Yeah, these assholes. Oh wait, hold up! I shouldn't say that. We're outside of the spoiler warning. Who um, <laughs> Lancer is a also technically a post-apocalyptic setting. Um, it has many other things beyond what I've described. This is just what's irrelevant to you know apocalypse. How I am very normal about it. So uh, clearly, can I pick up? Uh, can I pick up on, uh, you know, characters stopping an apocalypse and an example of that? Let me talk about how uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 represents that. <laughs> <laughs> it's my turn now. <laughs> All right, go so, off. The people live on titans. They, they are giant, like, animal-looking stuff. They're big, and they live on them. The guy has, the, the religious leader in the world has basically put steps in place so that new titans can't be made. And he's destroyed all knowledge of how they are made. So he's doing like a long-term apocalypse where everyone knows the world is ending. But they can't do anything to stop it because there's no information and the religious leader is just like... Ha. <laughs> mm. uh, on the other end, there's this group called Torna who hate the religious leader but also want to end the world uh, by killing God. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's very interesting because if you think about it, it's two different apocalypses happening here. It's the slow apocalypse where the guy slowly wants to kill off everything and then rebuild it in his own image. Whereas the other guys, they hate the world so much, they just want to destroy it outright. So I think you have two competing apocalypses of different levels there, where, you know, complete destruction of all living creatures will happen in both. It's just one is, like, forever dead and one is, like, we get this, like, weird Pope dude who's like, I am now God, <laughs> and I will rebuild in my own image. Have you guys experienced, Jeez. like, compete competing apocalypses? <laughs> Where um, it's like, look, we have option A, B, or C. We're trying to do C. The other two guys are trying to do A and B. <laughs> and those both suck. <laughs> I think I think the only well okay I can think of one kind of example um and that would be the uh the Hork Bajir Chronicles from the Animorph series um where you have basically the Hork Bajir uh are undergoing an apocalypse via uh, alien invasion uh because the Yerks are trying to enslave the entire race of 7 foot tall um spiky lizards um, and the Andalites are trying to stop them and eventually decide that uh, genocide is the only option there. And so they unleash a bioweapon to try and wipe out the Horkbajir before the Yerks can take them. And the this, is, this, this decision is, is revealed pretty late in the story, 
And so the end of the Horkbidger Chronicles is um, basically Oof. the protagonists racing to stop that from happening while also trying to fight off the Yurk invasion. Mm. And spoilers for a 20-year-old book, um, they do not succeed at either. Oh, God. Uh, Xenoblade 2 was a lot happier. It was a lot sadder than it was a lot happier. Basically, the goal is, instead of stopping the apocalypse, it's, oh, in Legends, there's this place called Elysium. We can just all move there. And spoilers, um, Elysium turns out to be an abandoned space station left by humanity that has, over time, basically be, gone from a quote-unquote paradise to basically what if humanity didn't touch anything in a, a sealed dome for 5,000 years. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, boy. Stinky. Everything turns yeah, to dust to when you touch it. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, uh, but luckily, uh, God had a plan, <laughs> uh, and that's all I can say. I don't want to spoil Comforting. the entire ending. But God had a plan. Um, God wanted to redeem Himself, so He puts things in place to make sure the world didn't completely end. Which is lucky. <laughs> well, that's good. That was nice of him. That was nice of him. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's his fault the world ended in the first place. But <laughs> yeah, the Hork the Horkbajir Chronicles was never going to have a happy ending because it was a uh, chronicle story in the middle of the series. That by that point, it had already been established that a the Hork-Bajir are not a numerous species anymore, and B, they are the ones that are still alive are all uh, enslaved by the Yurk Empire. So, sometimes it's doomed by the narrative like that. Okay, well, we don't have any mail in the mailbag yet, so for our listeners, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us a message at fanfictapes at gmail.com. Um, we'd love to hear from you if you have any uh, works you'd like to share from our previous episode prompts. Uh, you can also reach out to us on Twitter. Yeah, what's our Twitter handle? At FanFictionTapes. Uh, yeah, so tweet us there or tweet with the hashtag TheFanFictionTapes and we should see it. Um, please also leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple podcasts or wherever else you listen to our show. Uh, engagement uh, helps us keep this place running. It helps me wake up in the morning yes. to record this episode at 7am. It helps me stay up <laughs> past midnight to record this at 2am. Ah, time zones. Everyone say thank you. <laughs> so, do we have a writing prompt this week? Yes, we do. And it is write something post-apocalyptic for Cam. Hey. Yes, for me. Thank you. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that's our word count for today. All right. I have been Maya, and I was joined by... Dylan. 
And Cam. And Ian. Until next time, bye. Okay.